0: Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we bring to you the third and final talk we will be releasing from the Maybrick murder and the Diary of Jack the Ripper book launch event that took place in Liverpool, England on the weekend of the 10th and the 11th of September, 2022. Adam Wood is an author and publisher whose own works include Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective, The Case of the Painted Bicycle Lamp, The Watchmaker's Revenge, and Murder on the Brighton Express. He operates the publishing company Mango Books, which is the publisher of the Maybrick Murder and the Diary of Jack the Ripper. And at the book launch event for that book, Adam gave a talk on the similarities he noticed between the cases of Florence Maybrick and that of Israel Lipsky, who is convicted of the 1887 murder of Miriam Angel. Adam's talk is entitled Two Trials, 1887
1: and 1889. Um, As Tony kindly said, I I am a publisher and I was very pleased that Chris asked me to publish his fantastic work on a Maybrick case. Um, If you haven't got the book, it's available over there at just £20. and the Maybrick trial of, uh, Florence Maybrick trial of 1889, obviously there was a lot going on around that era, the Ripper murders the year before, certainly plenty of uh, famous cases in the 1890s. But reading Chris's account of the Florence Maybrick trial of 1889 reminded me of the similarities with another trial, um, which took place at the Old Bailey two years earlier, and that was of Israel Lipsky in 1887. So today I thought it'd be interesting to compare the two cases side by side see if this works. <laughs> so despite both being found guilty, uh, tried and found guilty of murder, at first glance there seems little to connect the two uh, cases of Liverpool cotton merchant's wife Florence Maybrick and Israel Lipsky, a poor immigrant in London's East End. But scratch beneath the surface and common ground appears. Both have been linked to the Jack the Ripper case of 1888, <clears throat> the year that separates their two trials, and both verdicts, resulted in public outcry with accusations of a miscarriage of justice. So let's take a look at the background of these two cases and how compare how their trials were conducted. Israel Lipsky was born Israel Lebolsk in Warsaw in 1865. He was apprenticed to be a woodturner, but as a Polish Jew was forced to escape the pogroms of Eastern Europe in 1885, and he arrived in London's East End penniless. Having learnt a trade in Poland, he quickly found work as a walking stick maker for Mr. Mark Katz. And as a consequence, was able to off, afford lodgings with Mr. Philip Lipsky and his family. Israel Lubulsk adopted their surname as his own. But by June 1887, business for Mark Katz had begun to decline. So Lipsky decided to set up on his own. He persuaded a worker named Simon Rosenblum to leave Mr. Katz's factory and join him uh, with another couple of employees. Just seven days into this new venture, Lipsky was implicated in the murder of Miriam Angel. And as we heard from Chris earlier, Florence Chandler was born in Alabama in 1862. In 1880, while traveling aboard the SS Baltic to Liverpool with her mother, she met cotton merchant, James Maybrick, returning to his home city. They started a relationship and they didn't seem perturbed by the age difference, She was 18, and Maybrick was in his early 40s. The couple married in London in July 1881, and by 1888 had settled in Battle Creek's house, where they raised a son and a daughter. After a number of happy years together, it seems that James Maybrick began to lose interest in his wife. He was by this time a heavy drug user, as we've heard from Chris, addicted to arsenic and strychnine. Florence turned elsewhere for attention and began an affair with Alfred Brearley at the end of 1888. She began to explore the possibility of a divorce from her husband. Going back to Lipsky, at nine o'clock on the morning of the 28th of June, 1887, he entered Matthew Lee's oil shop uh, at Backchurch Lane in London's East End and purchased a pennyworth of nitric acid. When asked what he wanted it for, Lipsky replied it's for use with his work. He handed over a discoloured bottle with a dirty label stuck on it, which was filled halfway up, and he jammed a cork in the top. After being warned it was highly poisonous, Lipsky left the shop and returned to his lodgings. In April, 1889, Florence Maybrick purchased two sets of fly papers from a local chemist named Thomas Wokes, paying in cash rather than putting them on the account. She told him that flies were becoming a nuisance in the kitchen of Battlecrease. Politely avoiding the revealing the real reason, soaking by the flow paper, she would obtain enough arsenic to, to create a face wash. At a later trial, the discovery of the fly papers was used against her as evidence that she'd used the arsenic from them to poison her husband. And I think it's interesting this contempt... Oh, it's the wrong picture. We'll talk about that later on. <laughs> Sorry about that. Jumping ahead. Back to Lipsky. In June 1887, he was living with his landlords in a three-storey house in Batty Street, Whitechapel. I don't know if you can see here. I really like this picture. But look at this girl's face in the bottom right corner. I don't know what the gene pool was like in Whitechapel (laughs) at the time. This is obviously she was obviously moving when the picture was taken, so the photographer's done a little bit of touching up there. Philip Lipsky and his family lived in rooms on the ground floor. And on the first floor were two rooms, one occupied by Mrs. Rachel Rubenstein and the other by Isaac Angel and his wife, Miriam. At the top of the house lived Israel Lipsky, who used the same room as a workshop in which he conducted his stick-making business. On the morning of the 28th of June, Isaac Angel left for work at 6.15 in the morning, leaving his pregnant wife Miriam in bed. She usually got up an hour or two later, then went to have breakfast with her mother-in-law who lived nearby. Isaac Angel closed the bedroom door behind him before setting off down the stairs and into the street. The bedroom, door, uh, bedroom key was in the lock on the inside, but the door itself was not locked. At 11 o'clock, Miriam hadn't arrived at her mother-in-law's house and she became anxious. Letting herself in through the street door, Mrs Angel went upstairs to the bedroom where her son and Miriam lived. There was no answer to her knocks and the door was now locked from the inside. Eventually the door was burst open and there lying on the bed was the body of Miriam Angel. She had bruising to the right side of her head, including a black eye. Her head was tilted to one side and a yellow fluid trickled from the corner of her mouth. She was naked from the chest down and her legs apart. The authorities soon arrived and began searching for clues. Peering in the dark space under the bed, they were astonished to see a man lying there unconscious. A slap to the face soon brought him to his senses. Dr. (laughs) Dr. Kay examined him and found burns inside his mouth caused by acid. It was Israel Lipsky. He was taken to nearby Lehman Street Police Station and then to the London Hospital to have his stomach pumped. Following his discharge and return to the cells, he was charged with the murder of Miriam Angel. At the time of James Maybrick's um, death in May 1889, The family had been living in some style at Battlecrease House, overlooking Liverpool Cricket Club, for just over a year. Whereas Israel Lipsky spent his life in a tiny attic room, the Maybricks had an almost palatial property with a number of servants attending to their every need. In late 1889, James Maybrick became very ill, almost certainly as a result of his intake of a mysterious bottle of medicine, which had arrived from London the day before. He suffered a steady decline before dying in his bed like Miriam Angel on the 11th of May. Florence's affair with Alfred Brearley proved to provide a motive. The discovery of the soaking fly papers and the fact that she'd seen switching bottles of medicine by James's bedside created enough suspicion for her to be accused of her husband's murder. This is where I make the comment about the contemporary sketch. You can see how the, uh, the artist has made Florence look quite evil. In that picture, it's almost like a sort of a visual, she's guilty before she's even been tried. Back to Lipsky. On the 29th of July, 1887, the trial of Lipsky began at the Old Bailey. He said he was not guilty of the murder of Miriam. And his story was he'd been attacked by two men, one of them Simon Rosenblum, who worked for him. They'd poured poison down his throat as he demanded money in his gold watch, saying, if you don't give it to us, you will be dead as the woman. He was said he was then thrown under the bed and left for dead. Despite this, the jury took just eight minutes to find him guilty and he was sentenced to death. The speedy verdict was no doubt influenced in no small measure by the summing up of the judge, as we shall soon hear. Florence Maybrick was sent to trial at St George's Hall, declining the opportunity for it to be moved to London. The seven day hearing heard her read out a statement, which was a grave mistake because she admitted to tampering with the medicine bottles. Yet, as with the trial of Israel Lipsky, the worst of the damage was done by the summing up of the judge, who in both the trial of Lipsky and Florence Maybrick was Justice James Fitz, Fitz James Stephen. He'd been educated at Eton London University and Cambridge and he was called to the bar in 1854, made a Queen's Council in 1868 and called to the bench in 1879. There's no doubt that Justice Stephen had enjoyed a long and distinguished career, but by the late 1880s, he was showing signs of physical and mental decline. There's no doubt this contributed to the handling, uh, to his handling of the Florence Maybrick trial and possibly that of Israel Lipsky. And he's summing up at the end of the Lipsky's trial, Justice Stephen told the jury that the object of the murder was either robbery or rape. Given the position in which Miriam's body had been found, naked from the chest down and her legs apart. And as nothing was missing from the room, it must have, the, the motive must have been a sexual one. If that was indeed the motive, the crime must have been committed by one man rather than two, as Lipsky claimed. This was despite there being no evidence that Miriam had been subjected to any sexual violence, but the comments of Justice Stephen to the jury just before they retired to consider their verdict, no doubt heavily influenced their decision. In Florence's case, the judge influenced the outcome of the trial even more strongly, not only with his summing up, but also with comments made while the evidence was being heard. During the summing up, which lasted over two days um, and more than seven hours, Justice Stephen let his morals affect his impartiality. Being deeply affected by Florence's admission of her affair with Brayley, his summing up was massively biased against her. He emphasised the evidence against her and sided with the prosecution and all the most important points of the trial, and it therefore came as no surprise that Florence was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death, despite her clear evidence that her husband had long been addicted to dangerous drugs and his death was most likely the result of his own actions. Justice Stephen's comments in both trials caused uproar, which resulted in campaigns by both press and public in support of the convicted. The widespread criticism following Florence's conviction affected him deeply, and it was to be his last trial. Over the next two years, his mental powers totally deserted him, and he was admitted to an asylum for the insane. Home secretary between 1886 and 1892, and thereby covering the convictions of both Lipsky and Florence Maybrick, was Henry Matthews who trained as a lawyer. With no court of appeal in Britain at the time, as we heard from Chris earlier, it was Matthews to whom petitions and appeals for clemency were sent, and therefore it was he who made any decision about deferrals of the death sentence. On the 14th of August, 1887, Matthews received a telegraph from Justice Stephen in response to an article which had appeared in the Pall Mall Gazette, which we'll hear about shortly. Stephen admitted to being troubled by his comment during the summing up in the Lipsky case that the motive had been sexual and recommended a respite of a week before the execution, before served, when served further evidence of scientific nature could be evaluated. Home Secretary Matthews, under fire from the press, agreed, but, informing, but in informing the governor of Newgate Jail of the respite, asked him to make it clear to Lipsky that it was not to be seen as an apprieve because Matthews himself had no doubt in his mind as to his guilt. Following Florence Maybrick's conviction, Matthews received so many letters, memorials, and petitions from both those who supported the verdict and those who disagreed, that he became almost entirely occupied with that case. He called a series of meetings with Mr Justice Stephen, leads of the prosecution and defence teams, and several medical witnesses at the Home Office. Sir Charles Russell, Florence's defending counsel, submitted a memorandum in which he criticised the biased handling of the case by Justice Stephen. It was later reported that the judge himself at his own meeting with the Home Secretary expressed not only his concurrence with the original verdict, but also his appreciation of the careful way in which a jury performed their arduous duties. Leading much of the campaigning from the press was William Thomas Stead, one of the most controversial figures of the era. He was a journalist and editor, often outspoken and sensational. It was Stead who in 1885 had exposed the child prostitution trade with a series of articles in the Pall Mall Gazette titled The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon. And he was also a fierce critic of Henry Matthews. In 1887, Stead was the editor of the Pall Mall Gazette. And on the 1st of August, he commented, The result of the trial of Lipsky leaves several points unsettled. Was the door of the murdered woman locked or not? The whole matter hinges on that. The landlady was not sure that it was. And the solicitor for the defense raises a good point this morning by the inquiry that the second ounce of nitric acid where that came from, as two were apparently employed and Lipsky only bought one. The case is one which calls for consideration at the hands of the authorities before the death sentence is enforced. This was followed by a series of articles campaigning on Lipsky's behalf, and it was this which troubled Justice Stephen into telegraphing Henry Matthews to express his own doubts. The Pall Mall Gazette's campaign culminated in the headline, Dare We Hang Lipsky? Saying, Mr. Matthews' mind must be fact-proof indeed if it does not admit the introduction by this time of an element of doubt into the case. Instead was no less vocal of the support of Florence's plight Having resigned of the editor of the Pall Mall Gazette in the year of the Maybrick trial, the next year he launched the Review of Reviews. In October 1892, he published a letter from a Mr. Neuberg in South Africa, who alleged that a man named Henry Wilson had confessed to him on his deathbed that he, along with an unnamed woman, had tampered with the medicine intended for James Maybrick by adding arsenic. The probability is that Stead wrote that letter himself. But then nevertheless, he used it as the basis for an expose on the Maybrick case. He traveled to Liverpool to investigate the evidence and concluded that James Maybrick was not only an habitual adulterer, and he regularly used arsenic as an, as an aphrodisiac. Stead wrote that Florence's case was not decided by the evidence, but solely upon the prejudice imported into the case by the judge on the last day of his summing up. Sir so Fitz James Stephen, he said, there was much prejudiced against wives suspected of misbehaviour. And he'd worked himself up into a kind of frenzy at the thought of Mrs. Maybrick becoming a popular heroine. The possibility of a reprieve for Israel Lipsky ended when, out of the blue, he confessed to the murder of Miriam Angel. He told the East End rabbi that his intention had been to steal money from the room, but Miriam had woken up as he searched he struck her on the head and held his hand over her mouth before taking the bottle of nitric acid from his pocket and pouring some down her throat. Realising his difficult position, he decided to take the rest of the poison and on hearing footsteps on the stairs outside, crawled under the bed. A difficult decision for Home Secretary Henry Matthews was thus avoided, and Lipsky was executed the next day. That evening, the Pall Mall Gazette, up to that point his most avid supporter, completely turned against him. Under the headline, all's well that ends well, they wrote, Lipsy's confession fortunately removes all doubt that he's been justly accused, justly convicted and justly executed. He's been hanged and few criminals ever went to the gallows that better deserved their fate. Florence Maybrick escaped the hangman's noose, we heard from Chris. Following the series of meetings with those involved in her trial, Home Secretary Henry Matthews decided to commute a sentence to one of penal <coughs> servitude for life. He concluded that while there was reasonable doubt that James Maybrick had, had died of arsenic poisoning, he still believed that Florence had attempted to administer arsenic. In other words, while she may not have been guilty of murder, she was guilty of attempted murder, and therefore a life sentence was more appropriate. But as Chris writes in his book, "It's available over there for 20 pound, <laughs> The problem with this view is that it was not the offence for which Florence was tried and convicted. If there was reasonable doubt that James had died from arsenic poisoning, as the Home Secretary wrote in his statement, then Florence should have been found not guilty and released. Stead was also highly critical of the decision, writing, the capital sentence was not inflicted, but penal servitude for life is, under present conditions, a sentence of death. Surely all the circumstances Considering all the circumstances, sorry, the time has come for that sentence to be revoked. It took 15 years of campaigning for Florence to be released from prison when she was freed in July 1904. Heading back to her Native America, for a while she undertook a series of lecture tours before becoming a recluse and died in uh, 1941, aged 79. She never received a pardon. Both cases came to be linked in their own way to the Whitechapel murders of 1888, the murders which divided the two trials. Israel Lipsky's name became well known to the residents of the East End, following his notoriety. In January 1888, a Mr. Meyer Jacobi accused a tailor of Philip Solomon's of having designs on one of his daughters, shouting, you Lipsky, I'll murder you. Sit down, Tony. What right have you to have my daughter? And in September that year, a man named Israel Schwartz was walking along Berner Street when he witnessed a man assaulting Elizabeth Stride, one of the supposed victims of Jack the Ripper. As he passed, the man turned and shouted Lipsky, apparently at the Jewish-looking Schwartz. As Detective Inspector Frederick Abeline later wrote, the name Lipsky had become an anti-Semitic byword frequently used to insult the Jew to whom it had been addressed. As for the Maybrick poisoning case, an even bigger link to the Ripper came in 1992 with the apparent discovery of his diary, allegedly written by James Maybrick, found underneath the floorboards of Battlecrease. I'll leave that to Chris to describe the truth behind that later today, or you can buy the book for 20 pound. <laughs> <laughs> to conclude, although the cases of Israel Lipsky and Florence Maybrick had two very different outcomes, the supposed crimes were similar and the judicial handling almost identical. With the death sentence no longer hanging over the head of those in the dock, it would be interesting to consider whether today's media, desperate for clicks and sales, would mount a campaign for reprieve following a guilty verdict. Thank you for listening.
0: And that was Adam Wood with his talk, Two Trials, 1887 and 1889. I would like to thank Adam Wood and James Johnston for making the release of Adam's Talk possible. You can check out all of Mango Books' fine releases by visiting them at their website, mangobooks.co.uk. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, the world's largest online repository of information about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Our podcast section contains hundreds of conference presentations, author interviews, roundtable discussions, limited-run serials, and book reviews, and I encourage you to subscribe to our show and check them out. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our podcast releases, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook, just search for RipperCast. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time.